If there was anything that depressed him more than his own cynicism, it was that quite often it still wasn't as cynical as real life. It was cynicism that helped him to embrace the void. The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning, it's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense, and eventually you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're gonna be okay. Face the void. Call it a one-way vacation to the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 155 of Embrace the Void, where the void shines on the just and the unjust alike. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we've got a book review perfect for the culture wars of summer. So, let's get ourselves a reader. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Sam Hoadley Brill, a grad student in philosophy at Cooney Graduate Center uh, with interests in moral, social, and political philosophy. Sam, would you like to say hi to the void? Greetings to the void. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for getting in touch. Uh, thanks for doing the work you've done so that the rest of us quite don't <laughs> quite have to do so much. So the reason I'm having you on is because you've recently released a review of Cynical Theory, uh, the full name of which is How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Is Harmful, Why This Harms Everybody, by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose. Now, from what you've told me, actually, before we get to the book, I'm curious about your background a little bit, because as I understand it, you used to be sort of more sympathetic to the anti-woke project. Uh, is that right? And do you want to explain maybe what that what that was like and what the transition's been like for you? Yeah. So I guess it depends exactly what you mean by the anti-woke project, especially mm -hmm. when you have people like Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay utilizing a very specific sense of this word woke they want to you know capitalize the w to distinguish the sjw you know proper sense of woke from just sort of broadly leftist um mm -hmm. social justice oriented projects so i mean i do think that there are times when wokeness in scare quotes because i don't mm -hmm. know how anyone can really be using that term very seriously um, in this context at least when it comes to Lindsay and Pluckrose mm -hmm. they I, I just do think that there are times when the left can in some sense go too far so for example if we look at the most popular scholars of anti-racism right now in this this culture moment that we're having mm -hmm. um, over the past couple months Robin D'Angelo and Ibram Kendi mm -hmm. I think that much of what they say is really valuable, but I also think that both of them, their books on the New York Times bestseller list, both contain some pretty ridiculous ideas. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, as you discussed with Rod Graham on um, mm -hmm. a couple episodes back, white fragility, um, I, I admired Rod's charity in discussing Robin D'Angelo's position. White mm -hmm. fragility just defined in the sense of white people's being sort of squeamish and resistant to having serious critical discussions about race and racism. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely um, a genuine phenomenon and is worth theorizing. Mm -hmm. But if you just take her at her word, D'Angelo's theory does seem to entail that anyone who tries to disagree or push back on this concept of white fragility or really anything that she believes is sort of unquestionable about race or racism, then you're just, that's just further white fragility. Mm -hmm. And so if you ever deny that you're being white fragile in some sense, uh, in some context, then 
that itself is just taken as further evidence for it. So I think, you know, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we can certainly sort of debate how far we, we are meant to take that. I, and I agree that if it was, if, if it is that kind of sort of Kafka trap, as people call it, then that would be a substantial uh, problem. And I do, I think, also agree that, you know, I sort of would prefer if the folks who were the most famous of the social justice warriors were maybe ones that were sort of less extreme in some of their approaches to some of these issues. Though I think it's also probably indicative of the current environment that they they in mm. particular have gotten pushed to the front, both by, you know, supporters and detractors. Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think that I, I found especially interesting mm-hmm. Rod's point that, you know, actually this is a genuine problem for D'Angelo's view and that it is the job of the more analytically minded philosopher types to come in and identify the most important and most valuable aspects of D'Angelo's view Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. to try to carve out exactly when someone is being white, someone is being fragile and when someone is actually trying Mm -hmm. to constructively disagree. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And also from what I gathered from your discussion of your educational background, I got the sense that maybe you've had more interaction with uh, critical studies than a lot of analytic philosophers who who don't tend to see a lot of this stuff in our sort of traditional uh, canon. So is, is that is that correct? And what what has the experience been like for you, sort of working through this literature? Yeah, I guess probably I have because you know most analytic philosophers probably throughout graduate school don't really get much of any of it unless they're taking classes in sociology or history or uh, black studies or Chicano studies or feminist studies, uh, other disciplines where these things Mm -hmm. are explicitly brought up. It's interesting. In my undergrad, I had zero experience with critical theory or postmodernism in philosophy courses. My department was very much, uh, analytically minded, there were, I think, no professors of color in the philosophy department while I was mm-hmm. there. And there were two women out of 12 professors. Mm-hmm. And yeah. none of them were engaged with any of this stuff at all. But I did come into a bit of contact with some critically critical studies adjacent uh, works in some history classes I took. Mm-hmm. So I, I read uh, Racism Without Racists by Eduardo Bonilla Silva. I've read excerpts from George Lipset's pos- uh, A Possessive Investment in Whiteness mm-hmm. and some other works. But it wasn't until last semester in grad school that I took a philosophy course that really engaged with these kinds of ideas and that was decolonial feminist ethics and epistemology where there was a lot of stuff I had just never encountered before and Mm -hmm. that really uh, formed the basis of my familiarity with the type of scholarship that Lindsay and Pluckrose go on to characterize in um, chapter 8 which I mm-hmm. specifically focus on in the piece. And I'm curious to, to hear about that class a little bit. I'm personally about to start a, a PhD in education, which I get the impression will involve reading directly a lot more of this critical studies stuff as mm-hmm. well. Did you find that class valuable? Did you find it indoctrinating? Like, what, did, did it did it sort of live up to the the concerns about critical studies, do you feel like? It's interesting. I didn't know what I was, I didn't really know what I was signing up for going into it. I thought, Mm -hmm. you know, man, when will I ever get a chance to take another class like this in a philosophy setting? And I didn't know much about the reputation. Like I had heard of grievance studies, the hoax. Um, I hadn't Mm -hmm. looked into it much. I knew that I was a pretty left identifying person, but I also knew that I thought there were points at which 
left leftist activists and scholars could go too far. I found a lot of the readings, the course readings, incredible, incredibly valuable and incredibly mm -hmm. insightful, particularly some work in feminist philosophy of science by mm -hmm. uh, Helen Longino. There was mm -hmm. a really good Helen Longino paper, uh, Cognitive and Non-Cognitive Values in Science, I believe. Interesting. A really, really good paper by Alison Wiley, I think, about mm -hmm. standpoint epistemology and trying to trying to sort of rescue or excavate the most valuable insights of epistemologists working in standpoint theory and to mm -hmm. try to wrestle with some of the more common objections to standpoint theory mm -hmm. and to see whether any of those objections actually made sense of what mm -hmm. a charitable reconstruction of standpoint theory would look like. And it seemed pretty obvious to me that standpoint theory understood as just mm -hmm. the basic insight that people's experiences and people's social position in an unjust society will Mm -hmm. Not determine, definitely not determine, but um, present certain opportunities for uh, marginally situated knowers that dominantly situated knowers simply are far less likely to consider. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that just seems <laughs> trivial, like not not trivially true, but it's just a a right. basic insight of an empiricist approach to knowledge. Right. It seems to sort of follow fairly naturally from a, just a basic understanding about skepticism and human cognition. Those uh, essays sound really fascinating, especially the standpoint epistemology one, given that there's a, like a lot of the culture war debates are over this sort of access to objective truth questions or, you know, is standpoint epistemology evil or not? So that, that one sounds really mm -hmm. interesting. And maybe we can um, hopefully include that in the show notes. Okay, so with all of that context in mind, let's talk about the book some. Since you worked your way through cynical theory, let's start with the with the cover of the book, right? We shouldn't judge the book by its cover, but I am a little oh, yeah. curious what your interpretation is of the cover art. Uh, for folks who've not seen it before, the cover art appears to me to be rainbow aviator sunglasses. Is that what your take is, and what do you think they meant by that? Yeah, uh... <laughs> yeah that is indeed what what is on the cover i've seen some people suggest that this is just like a shot at the queer community hmm. you know, or just uh making fun of rainbow flags and filters and the sort of mm -hmm. obsession over this kind of thing you know it's an interesting question whether they sort of might have whether it could function as a dog whistle but i'm not gonna like attribute that to them i don't mm -hmm. think that's necessarily what's going on because there is a, a passage where they use an analogy that provides the best explanation of what the cover is supposed to mean, I think. So I actually, okay. I jotted it down here. Mm -hmm. So they, they use it, they use color vision as an analogy for our ability to detect social injustices. So the idea is the more privileged you are, the worse your color vision is or the fewer colors you can see. So they say hmm. a straight white male being triply dominant might thus see only in shades of gray. A black person would be able to see shades of red. A woman would be able to see shades of green and an LGBT person could see shades of blue. A black lesbian could see all three colors. So this is, this is their sort of, you know, are the colors, the colors like yeah, the colors like standing in for forms of oppression or something like that? Like these these are this is these are the colors you get, you know, standpoint access to because you have this background experience. Right. Something okay. like that, yeah. And and not just oppression, but like mm -hmm. reality itself, which mm -hmm. maybe I think it could just be sort of part of their interpretation of standpoint theory or of uh postmodernism slash critical theory in general that thinks that you know all there is to objective reality is 
unjust power structures pervading uh, society. I think when I first saw it, what it, what occurred to me was the old term PC police, right? Because of the aviator sunglasses <laughs> being the sort of classic uh, sunglasses yeah. of police officers that this is sort of, right, the LGBTQ police coming to censor you or silence you or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a possible take as well. Yeah, I okay. think, I think uh, what you take from the cover is going to be very influenced by like your preconceived notions and we know a lot of their fans uh Mm -hmm. despite them you know repeatedly claiming that they're super left well not super left but that they're that they're definitely leftist you know Mm -hmm. a lot of their their further right fans will probably see you know that sort of thing as like uh i just see it and like appreciate Mm -hmm. them just making fun of mm-hmm. you know pc police or just lgbt the the lgbtq community in general okay or their symbolism at least certainly all right so let's not judge the book by its cover what is the central thesis of this book would you say oh man uh this <laughs> the thesis so <laughs> i watched uh there's a youtube video that helen pluckrose put out a couple days ago she's doing this series where she's answering fan questions about the book and okay. a fan asked her this question, and the video is like four or five minutes long <laughs> of her just explaining it. So I think before I get to the thesis, I should probably just say how they characterize postmodernism. Okay. First, I'll, I'll give a brief statement of the thesis, and mm-hmm. that's the idea that contemporary social justice scholarship and activism – can be traced back to postmodernism. Mm-hmm. And the way they understand postmodernism is two central principles and mm-hmm. four themes. So the mm-hmm. two principles are there's a postmodern knowledge principle, which is radical skepticism about whether objective knowledge or truth is obtainable, and a commitment to cultural constructivism which is a strange way to uh, constructivism in Mm -hmm. a knowledge context is is a little strange. Then there's the postmodern political principle, which says it's a belief that society is formed of systems of power and hierarchies, which decide what can be known and how. And they Mm -hmm. basically take these from Foucault. And then they say the themes, the four themes of postmodernism are the blurring of boundaries the power of language, cultural relativism, and the loss of the individual and the universal. Mm-hmm. So they they tra- they find this in the sort of the OG postmodernism of the sixties and seventies Europe, um, which they sometimes call high postmodernism. Like this is uh, developed by people like Foucault, Derrida, Lyotard, and Baudrillard. Mm-hmm. Um, but they focused they focus a lot on Foucault. And then uh, they say that after OG postmodernism died out, you got applied postmodernism, which came in the 80s and 90s. And this is scholars in various fields seeing that you can use some postmodern ideas for political purposes. Mm-hmm. And they spend half the book explaining applied postmodernism, laying out these different things. So they do post-colonial theory, queer theory, critical race theory and intersectionality, feminism and gender studies, and disability studies and fat studies. Mm-hmm. So that's the applied postmodernism. And then finally, starting in like 2010, they say we get the third final uh evolution right like the mm-hmm. the ultimate the ultimate uh you know the like the form. charizard <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that that's reified postmodernism uh-huh. and reified postmodernism takes the central tenets of postmodernism for granted as obvious like self-evident truths okay so what was for the original postmodernists a sort of a source of radical skepticism 
now mm-hmm. apparently leads to sort of extreme dogmatism and the ultimate uh the thesis i guess is rounded off i probably am spending more time than than pluck rose herself on this is that the social justice scholarship which they so reified postmodernism is basically a synonym for social justice scholarship where the s and the j are capitalized uh-huh. and this is literally threatening to undermine the the foundations of civil society mm-hmm. and the scholarship oh sorry yeah the scholarship is actually responsible for the activism uh-huh okay so there's a lot there i think that we want to pick through yeah. um let me let me first ask right uh i'm just just for sort of getting a sense of tone uh, um i would say that a lot of their material tends to lean towards the kind of catastrophizing approach to these kinds mm-hmm. of issues and mm-hmm. you were saying there about the collapse of western civilization or i don't think that i mean maybe they've learned to avoid putting the western in front and just saying the collapse of civilization but uh i'm curious would you say that they toned down the catastrophizing for this book would you say this is sort of a fairly muted approach to their usual material so if you compare it to the sort of article blog posts you're going to see on new discourses mm-hmm. then yes at times <laughs> because okay. there there is there is straightforwardly apocalyptic language in mm-hmm. in this book mm-hmm. um especially in the intro and in chapters 8 and 9 which focus on reified postmodernism and mm-hmm. the kind of the ways in which reified postmodernism has seeped into society at large and has has sort of broken up uh, broken out of the the ivory tower okay so with that in mind would you say just in your opinion broadly speaking and then we can talk about details do you think that they successfully support the thesis of their book uh, a- absolutely not okay. <laughs> so I think there are three main problems with the way they argue for their thesis. So the first one is just the a geni- the problem of the genealogy. Mm-hmm. It's it's not very well explained. Uh, there's a review by Oliver Traldi um, mm-hmm. on ArcDigi that goes pretty significantly into that issue i recommend people check out but i mean they one of the things that i found least plausible was the way that they anthropomorphize the ideas Mm -hmm. of postmodernism and they explain the development not in terms of scholars academics developing Mm -hmm. theories but as these theories sort of transforming and adapting it's like a rapidly accelerated natural selection argument kind of kind of a dawkins mimetics kind of approach yeah it it's it's really like evolutionary psychology applied to hmm. like an esoteric philosophy so it's there there are times i mean and you see this all the time that they talk about postmodernism as a virus um mm-hmm. as a sort of like people have been infected mm-hmm. and yeah, so that's one of the problems. Okay. The second main kind of problem is the... These are the interpretive problems. So as I... I mean, I focus a lot on the interpretive problems in chapter yeah, 8. Yeah, l- l- we'll talk about that five. one in a second. But go ahead and give yeah. us the third problem. Yeah, so all sorts of interpretive problems. And it's not just chapter 8. It's, it's mm-hmm. throughout the book. And then the last one is even if we buy the genealogy and their interpretation of the scholars Mm -hmm. there's the problem of their conclusion which i see there's so much in the the thesis statement that i left this out is that the way for us to defeat postmodernism and social justice scholarship and activism is to endorse and promote uh liberalism science and regulated capitalism Mm-hmm. but they don't so i'm not opposed to this conclusion i think something like it mm-hmm. uh would be true if this were 
a completely accurate genealogy and interpretation of the scholarship, but they just don't give us reasons to to believe that this is um, an adequate solution. Okay, yeah, and I want to talk about their solutions some as well because I, I generally tend to find that they're a little light on the um, what to do next part. But let's talk about the interpretive stuff first since you've already explained kind of the genealogy issues a little bit. And in your review, you focused on Chapter 8. Now, like you said, there are similar issues, you think, in, in the majority, you know, in multiple chapters. But let's talk about what you found uh, in Chapter 8. And first of all, can you explain why you picked this particular chapter as the one to zero in on? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of this has to do with the fact that I had taken the decolonial feminist ethics and epistemology course. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so through the reading for that class, I became familiar with the work of Christy Dotson, who's a mm -hmm. very influential um, black feminist epistemologist. And her work, I ended up writing my, my term paper focusing on her idea of epistemic violence and how I thought that a lot of people commenting on her on her conception of epistemic violence in the secondary literature mm -hmm. had only focused on a, a narrow reading of that. So I ended up diving into a lot of the really recent literature on social epistemology, feminist epistemology, and these issues surrounding epistemic injustice, epistemic oppression, and these are really the issues that chapter eight on reified postmodernism mm -hmm. is all about. Okay. And so, so I, I had become familiar. Yeah, I had become familiar with Dotson's work, uh, Jose Medina, Nora Berenstain, and others. And so when I read through chapter eight, I, I already knew mm -hmm. so much of what was wrong with it compared okay. to I had to actually do a little bit of research for the other chapters to find the flaws. Okay, so I gather there's problems. Do you want to give a sense, maybe of some of the examples, get get a little fine-grained here and talk about uh, their treatment of Dotson in particular? Yeah, 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 sure. So there are, um, they spend more time on Christy Dotson in Chapter 8 than anyone else. And Chapter 8 is interesting because you know, having focused on all these different fields before in the five preceding chapters, post-colonial theory, queer theory, uh, gender mm -hmm. studies, they, almost all of the philosophers they cite in chapter eight are actually academic philosophers. So I, I think I misspoke. All of the scholars, almost all of the scholars they cite mm -hmm. in chapter eight are academic philosophers. And, you mean in like analytic tradition specifically? Yeah, right, right, okay. right. And so they, there are three huge misrepresentations of Dotson. So I actually pulled some of the quotes. Okay. So they start by introducing the reified postmodernism wave with Miranda Fricker. They say, look, Miranda Fricker coined this term epistemic injustice, and it led to a huge, huge sort of almost a subdiscipline of mm -hmm. epistemology focusing on epistemic injustice, which is true. And just to reiterate, this is the dangerous wave, right? This is the one where things have this become is, yeah. viral. This is the fire-breathing dragon. Okay, this is the, 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 the ultimate boss. So <laughs> they say, here's a quote. They say, in 2014, Christy Dotson expanded and recontextualized Fricker's concept of epistemic injustice, which she sees, Dotson sees, as a superficial aspect of a bigger, less tractable identity group-based problem she calls epistemic oppression. This form of oppression is alleged to occur when the knowledges and knowledge-producing methods said to be used by marginalized groups, including folk wisdom and witchcraft, are not included within our prevailing understanding of knowledge. So literally you can search through Christy Dotson's entire body of work and witchcraft and folk wisdom never come up. No, not once. Like, not once. I don't know who they're reading here. I. It was it was shocking. Okay. <laughs> it was shocking. Yeah. Then it's so they they continue. There's some more discussion. Then they say uh, instead of science, 
Social justice scholarship advocates for, quote, other ways of knowing derived from theoretical interpretations of deeply felt lived experience. Social justice scholarship argues that reason and evidence-based knowledge are unfairly favored over tradition, folklore, interpretation, and emotion because of the power imbalances baked into them. Without the slightest awareness of the racist and sexist implications, theory views evidence and reason to be the cultural property of white Western men. So there's no citation for that claim. But then they go on to say, uh, to, to give us some examples. So then mm -hmm. the next paragraph, examples of this are common. Dotson famously called the dominance of reason and science a culture of justification in 2012 and argued instead for a culture of praxis, which would incorporate multiple ways of knowing in order to include more diverse groups of people in philosophy. So what their characterization of Dotson mm -hmm. calling the dominance of reason and science a cultural justification this is mm -hmm. not at all what Dotson is talking about when she talks about a, a culture of justification so what what Dotson is talking about um, is the prevailing norm in mm -hmm. anglophone academic philosophy of having to uh, of for scholars working on neglected areas in philosophy like eastern philosophy for a long mm -hmm. time feminist philosophy africana philosophy right someone mm -hmm. i just saw a tweet from um tommy curry talking about how when he was in grad school he wrote an essay on hegel and du bois and his professor said he would only grade the hegel part because w.e.b du bois is not a, a philosopher <laughs> right <laughs> so this is the idea this is this is what this is the problem of a culture of justification is uh -huh. you if you want to argue that say uh w.e.b du bois for instance or frederick Douglass has philosophically relevant ideas mm -hmm. in his text you're going to have to justify that whereas the hmm. same ideas coming from you know a mm -hmm. slave owner of the same period would be taken for granted just because the person's name is you know thomas jefferson instead of frederick Douglass. so that mm -hmm. would count as a so so when she talks about a culture of justification science and reason have absolutely nothing to do with it right so, so it's, it's, right, right so when i when you described it it gave the impression like um they're rejecting the idea that we have to give justifications for our beliefs full stop or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. And Dotson literally has a footnote explaining mm -hmm. the difference in her terms between justification and validation. Validation, she thinks, is going to be necessary for any kind of epistemological project mm -hmm. where we have to have certain agreed upon methods of determining the soundness of an argument or the um the whether a certain belief is warranted or unwarranted and there seems to be either willful ignorance of these nuances in the paper or just clumsiness yeah and it seems like i mean something i was curious about when I, when you were describing these things when i was reading your reviews is how do we make sure that we're not just sort of doing philosophical nitpicking over details but i mean like it seems to me from what you just described there right it's the difference between sort of giving the impression that uh these individuals do not care like as, as they often like to point out don't care about truth at all or something like that rather than that they are trying to highlight that there is an additional burden put on certain uh, sources or arguments um, based on um, historic inequalities or various things like that. Like that, that seems to me to be a fairly substantive uh, misreading of the material, given how much of their argument hangs on these attempts to prove that um, that 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 postmodernism is out to get truth in a radical kind of way. Exactly. Exactly. That's you said it. I think you put it perfectly because. You know, one could argue that this is just a, a trivial um, distinction that they failed to recognize. But the if you follow chapter eight and mm -hmm. they they repeat their um, they repeat their 
important interpretive claims throughout so that when you get to the end and they conclude, you know, ultimately reified postmodernism is completely insulated itself from all criticism because it doesn't even care about evidence and reason. The only mm -hmm. way that they get to these claims is through repeated distortion, perversion of thinkers like Dotson. And I, I, I want to just read one more quote because this one okay. is where it gets just, just, just disgusting. So they claim in Dotson's 2014 paper, Tracking Epistemic Oppression, literally they got the title of the paper wrong. Okay. There's she she's never written a paper called tracking epistemic oppression. What they, is the they, paper they, called? It's called conceptualizing epistemic oppression. But her first famous paper was called tracking epistemic violence, tracking practices of silencing. So, OK, just so, great job on their great. part. They okay. clearly like read the paper. So they claim. Dotson ultimately asserts that knowledge is inadequate unless it includes the experiential knowledge of minority groups. Uh, real quick, nobody in philosophy talks about experiential knowledge. I've, I've never been able to find this phrase in Dotson's work or any of the other uh, authors that they cite. Uh, continuing, this knowledge is assumed to be consistently different from that of dominant groups because of the power dynamics between the groups. Furthermore, the knowledge produced by dominant groups, including science and reason, is also merely the product of their cultural traditions and is not superior to the knowledge produced by other cultural traditions. Dotson explicitly proceeds from the two postmodern principles. Her argument, which is central to standpoint theory, real mm -hmm. quick, standpoint theory has been around since like the 70s and 80s materialist feminist inspired by like critical theory Marx and Hegel so mm -hmm. I don't know what the hell they're talking about there they say her argument denies that science and reason belong to all humans and are the same for all humans and in effect assigns them to white western men Dodson goes further than this the logical implication of her third order oppression is that if someone from a dominant group does not agree that her knowledge producing systems are limited by their failure to include experiential knowledge from outside them. That is because she's unable to step outside of her own culture. In other words, legitimate disagreement is not an option. Okay. Oh my goodness. So does Dotson not I say that? <laughs> Dotson's paper, the 2014 paper, conceptualizing epistemic oppression. It contains the words, uh, black, and women once each only mm -hmm. citing other scholars the paper is so technical and abstract and just it all the analysis takes place at like the meta meta level mm -hmm. that there's just no way you can get any of this from that paper so none of these Experience. are like direct quotes or anything like that this is no all oh, no <laughs> no yeah no not even <laughs> Interesting. Oh my goodness. I, I just, uh, I, I cannot imagine how they would begin to defend this reading of Dotson from mm -hmm. actually, if they just like read the entire article out loud. Are there any direct me. quotes from the articles in this section of Dot when they're talking about Dotson? Did, did they bring up any sort of direct quotes to sort? There, there are quotes in terms of where Dotson defines certain notions, but mm -hmm. then they're always elaborated in a in an uncharitable or in a cynical in a yeah exactly a cynical way mm -hmm. yeah okay so I think that's that's helpful to give an impression of sort of the the scholarship at work in this in this particular part, which you said is pretty important as the turn, right, where they claim that this is where things get really bad. Um, so let's see. So the second subtitle of this book, right, there are multiple lengthy subtitles, is why it's harmful to everybody. So can you say some a little bit about, you know, we've talked already some about the kind of harms that they claim are likely to follow from critical theory. Is there any more sort of unpacking of those harms that you feel like would be valuable for understanding their concerns here? 
And do you feel like any of these concerns are legitimate? I mean, you talked at the beginning some about leftism gone too far. Do you feel like there are examples that they bring up that are legitimate? Yeah, yeah. I do think that there are some that they bring up. I mean, they're referring to like to a pretty standard catalog of examples, mm -hmm. right? They talk about the trend of college student protests leading to deplatforming or cancellation of invited speakers, you know, mm -hmm. people like Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, etc. They talk about cancel culture. They talk about people being fired from their jobs for expressing politically um, unpopular slash, you know, at times bigoted <laughs> views. Mm -hmm. And I do think that there are some serious concerns here. I mean, I think that no doubt there are, there are cases where people are fired from their jobs due to social media pressure put on their bosses or whatever um, to fire a person for expressing a politically unpopular opinion that mm -hmm. does not merit them losing their jobs over it for I mean I forgot the guy's name but there was someone who tweeted like a political scientist study about That's the like effects sure. of nonviolent process yeah right right mm -hmm. so I mean that one that one was a new level in my book I mean I I wasn't super sold on how actually pernicious this quote-unquote cancel culture could be at the time but that seemed to be something that merited concern, although I don't know. In my view, it's impossible to know mm -hmm. how much worry about this is appropriate, mm -hmm. what the correct reaction to this sort of thing is, because it's... Yeah, the the whole cancel culture nuance is something that I just haven't looked into enough to have a super, super well formulated opinion about. But fair enough. I mean, I do think it's it's concerning to some degree. But mm -hmm. the, in terms of like why it's harmful to to everybody, like how much harm could this cause? The problem with their view. Um in my view, right, the problem with mm -hmm. their view is that there's really no end to how destructive or how harmful this could be. Because the book literally states that this poses a problem to the foundations of civil society itself. Because in their view, postmodernism's goal, the explicit purpose is to deconstruct and dismantle all of the institutions and systems that mm -hmm. make civil liberal society possible right so i mean it in principle i think they're committed to the idea that you know this could lead to world war three and a nuclear apocalypse this it, it it could end the world yeah let's talk about that some because towards the end of the book in the last chapter or so they they basically argue that postmodernism is fundamentally incompatible with liberalism because, as we've discussed, they claim that postmodernism rejects objective truth and liberalism, on the other hand, as they say, quote, sees knowledge as something we can learn more or less objectively. Okay, now, <laughs> that description of liberalism seems weird to me because liberalism, as I understand it, is primarily a political view and not an epistemic view. It doesn't, as I understand it, necessarily entail anything about our access to knowledge one way or the other, other than, <laughs> like, you know, the Millsian kind of idea that discourse is generally a better way to, to get to knowledge if such a thing were to exist. So I'm curious, does this seem to you like they are... Um, adding something to the concept of liberalism that isn't essential to it? Are they, is this like a conflation error? Are they deliberately blurring these concepts with their own personal epistemology? Or do you really actually agree with them that, that postmodernism is incompatible with liberalism, even on this epistemic front? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think this is, this is a point, this is a, a real weak point of the book and of the sort of work that Pluckrose, Lindsay, and also Bogosian that they've done 
they talk a lot about the correspondence theory of truth as you mm -hmm. um discussed in an endlessly entertaining episode with liam kofi bright um that the they they just don't know what the, the correspondence theory of truth is mm -hmm. so i mean they i mean they they have they they <laughs> they have the basic element of it right which is that uh you know for a statement to be true for a proposition to be true is for it to correspond with the facts with reality but they also add to the correspondence theory of truth that um we that that we can come to know what the truth is through like evidence and reason and experimentation and science mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so i think this is what's sort of seeping into their conception of liberalism as being not only a political philosophy mm -hmm. but an epistem an epistemology and it's i i i mean yeah so i do think they are conflating mm -hmm. and that that section to me and i think it was because it sort of is getting to their final you know summary of their arguments kind of stuff really felt like at various points it slipped into kinds of straw manning so for example they say uh these things are incompatible because liberalism accepts criticism even of itself and therefore is self-correcting whereas theory cannot be <laughs> criticized right that's a that's a direct <laughs> quote but like it seems just sort of fundamentally absurd to be maintaining at this point that their opponents refuse to acknowledge any kind of criticism despite as you've talked about a literature where they you know look at objections and, and take those objections seriously yeah so this i mean i i only you know focused on the dots and but th the reason that the dots one of the reasons that the dots and stuff is so important is that the insights that they sort of hallucinate in dotson's work then go on to form the, the basis of their analysis of robin d'angelo Mm -hmm. where they say, look, I mean, Robin D'Angelo, they call her, you know, the, the purest representation of reified postmodernism. Mm -hmm. The way I read the chapter, she is the only one who could possibly be interpreted as actually committed to reified postmodernism as they describe it. Mm -hmm. So, and, and actually Oliver, in, in Oliver Chaldi's review, he has a really good way of explaining um, what the problem with this is. Mm -hmm. There's a, I have a quote of it right here, actually. Oh, where did it go? Where he says, so Oliver writes, um, he actually gives me a little bit of an anonymous shout out where he says, a philosopher colleague is writing a separate review focusing on the book's treatment of contemporary academic philosophy in the reified postmodernism chapter. Taken as a whole, that chapter suggests a sort of psychological effect in which the authors have started off by reading the worst examples of the genres and trends they're interested in. And then, when encountering ambiguous precursors or somehow similar but more sophisticated contemporary ideas, sort of built their understanding of those ideas from the really bad texts with which they'd begun their investigation. Right. I think this is, you know, at the end of the day, it's speculation, but it seems to me absolutely on point. The mm -hmm. amount of, if you go, if you go to New Discourses, and you go to James Lindsay's um, his encyclopedia of social mm -hmm. justice terminology. More than any other author by far, he's citing Robin DiAngelo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in 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 you know, you go to the term knowledge, you go to the term science, you go to epistemology, or you go to power. Mm -hmm. Every single one of these entries starts with a quote from. A Robin D'Angelo book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's it's in a sense focusing on the softest target and then interpreting everyone based on what they see as that softest target. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. And since you've repeatedly mentioned new discourses, I feel compelled as it is my my current hobby horse to reiterate to folks that we, we now know that new discourses is owned by a far right Christian nationalist who is deeply involved in anti globalist anti covid conspiracy theories. So take that context into consideration when you are reading things at new discourses, please. 
Um, okay, so <laughs> let's see. Before we run out of time here, I want to ask at least, you know, I know this is, you know, matter of personal opinion, personal preference, so, but some folks do care about style of writing. And so I'm just curious as someone who read the book, who on, who's reviewing it, right, on a scale of like uh, one to 10 readability, where like one is Kant and 10 is Hume, um, where would you put this book? <laughs> oh, God, I, I, I can't accept the premise of Kant being one. <laughs> And and Hume being ten, I did a oh whole goodness. I did a whole tweet about this. I was told that if I really wanted to nail just making a joke for philosophers, I should replace Kant with Brandom. Um, but I wanted to make a joke that more than tens of people would get. So, oh and I also God. wanted to make a joke that would make all the Kant scholars really angry. So, yeah. <laughs> if uh, Kant is one, then the book is somewhere in the negative, I don't know, twenty thirties. <laughs> But no, no, the book, the, the the writing, the writing is not that bad, but it's not very good. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, I think it's on average better than what you read in a um, in a new discourses blog post, especially mm-hmm. the, the James Lindsay. I do think that uh, Pluck Rose is, is a better writer than Lindsay. And from what I gather, Pluck Rose wrote the entire first draft of cynical theories and then james Lindsay came in and added what he added and i think there are passages where i can tell that Lindsay had more of his hand in um the writing style and i prefer pluck rose's writing but i mean it's not like a stylistic Mm -hmm. masterpiece at all it's it's not horrible but yeah yeah okay. it, there, there are some there's some good lucid passages but yeah. overall there's a lot of repetition too that gets um excessive yes i have noticed that in generally speaking in their work are there any other things that you would point to in there that you would say you found valuable that like you would you would recommend people read a particular passage or a particular chapter or there's a particular argument that you thought they actually did well Ah, oh, valuable I mean, I think the work is valuable <laughs> because people ought to know, you know, to what extent they're actually engaging with the primary thinkers and mm-hmm. people ought to go through the end notes and notice how many crucial paragraphs do not have citations and just sort of rely on their mm-hmm. readers accepting them on their word because of course they're the experts on all this stuff um okay. in terms of like anything that i think is actually valuable in itself yeah. uh, you know, it's like for example because... <laughs> i mean like one thing i was curious about because they have a very brief as far as i can tell section on you know um action actionable stuff what do we do after like what do, how do we deal with these mm-hmm. issues right what are our our policies going forward or something like that. And I'm curious, do you feel like they're what they describe as their sol- secular solution to postmodernism? Can you explain that a bit and, and maybe say if you find that to be a particularly valuable approach to any of this? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So they, you know, we've met, I've mentioned they identify liberalism, science and regulated capitalism as the solutions and so we're going to expect them to like give an argument as to why this is the case right all they do is say that actually these aren't meta narratives science capitalism and liberalism aren't meta narratives like marxism and religions because they self-correct they uh you know these are claims that i could accept but to claim that like capitalism regulated capitalism and political liberalism and science especially given you know the Mm -hmm. the replication crisis and all the problems that we've been seeing in science this would take a whole other book to argue and they just Mm -hmm. sort of baldly assert that these are the antidotes to social justice scholarship and activism so and i mean they they also they talk about liberal ethics. This is a phrase that they repeatedly use. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea what the hell liberal ethics is supposed to be. Like I don't I mean th- this is probably a problem that goes back to James Lindsay's 
aversion to doing <laughs> metaethics because he thinks that it's fundamentally misguided and it tries to use tools that do not equip it with what it needs to do. I don't understand. I mean, you, you, you we've talked about this. You told me that, you know, yeah. you actually tried to engage with Lindsay on metaethics. Yeah, I did. When I uh, back when he did the first conceptual penis hoax, I tried to get him to come on the show and suggested that he could come on and debate. We could talk about ethics and meta ethics since that's my focus and since that was related to the stuff that he was working on at the time. It seemed like, and his response was something along the lines of, uh, "You know, he'd rather chew glass, I think, or something like that," because he thinks that, like, <laughs> you know, that, not not because he hated me personally, he had no idea who I was, but because he thinks that ethics and meta ethics are a waste of time. That I think he really he sort of oh uh, really does substantially believe i think he has a real axe to grind with analytic philosophy and philosophers in general i think he thinks we're you know time wasters and such like that and are fixated and like sure uh, you know when i'm speaking to other philosophers i'll make cracks about how terrible philosophers are um but i think <laughs> you know my, my sense is that he feels like you know for example he might say something like sam harris solved all these problems in moral landscapes and there's no more conversation oh, than he be had or something i don't know if he's literally said that before i think he may have implied something along those lines at one point or i took that from what is is what he was saying so um but yes i do have the impression that he is uh very adverse to ethics and meta ethics despite now claiming to be an expert in social justice ethics um so yeah i would say that's probably part of the issue there yeah and, he, and he cites john rawls in the beginning of the book yeah he says that. like all these social justice activists don't talk about john rawls who had the best theory of social justice ever and there's this there's this new discourses blog post that was i think originally published on aereo where he's like john rawls the creator of the most important <laughs> thought experiment of all time like which and which just, is weird because just, it's a constructivist thought experiment i don't like it's an it's an attempt to try to solve ethics if you don't if you're not a radical objectivist right if you're not like a full thoroughgoing realist it's an attempt to give sort of a constructivist account so like if liberal ethics is anything according to Rawls it's constructivist and they just no no from clearly just no understanding of any of the pushback on Rawls's theory mm -hmm. you know I mean the, the the first iteration of it in a theory of justice sort of only gets off the ground if you presuppose certain mm -hmm. liberal principles. And then he sort of walks that back later on in his, uh, in, you know, in response to the communitarian critiques mm -hmm. where he says, actually, you know what? I, you know, liberalism is not something that I can really give like an independent justification for. Like he thinks it's the best kind of decent civil society, but that, given his commitment to um, pluralism about the good, there are other, you know, fundamentally decent, but, you know, he thinks not as quite as good as liberal societies. There are other ways of structuring society. So John Rawls does not give an argument for liberalism. Yeah. Or, or, I mean, he, he might try. People can construe him as trying to, but I don't think he has any independent justification. And then you have the fact that, like, liberal ethics you, you have the two most uh you know the the mm -hmm. most the biggest fight in ethics is you know the consequentialist and the deontologist and these are both founded by liberal uh, mm -hmm. political thinkers I mean, just it's just i really yeah. hope he he can enlighten us on what he means by liberal ethics it is also funny to me that he idolizes Rawls so much since Rawls argues so much for equity of outcome rather than mere equality of opportunity. <laughs> like, he very clearly yeah. argues for the maximum principle, which is an attempt to balance out the equity of outcomes. And so, you know, these guys have spent so much time attacking anybody who points to um, inequity of outcomes as being sort of illiberal because they're going to demand radical equality. But, like, that was an objection that was raised and, and, 
re- like resolved by Rawls. I feel like when he made this sort of second <laughs> principle of justice. Like so, I, yeah, I think it it does get very silly. I think when they when they start to hedge over into the ethical ter- there, territory there. But I realize uh, we are running real short on time here, and I still got to torture you. So I think we're gonna have to <laughs> shift on over to the enlightening round. Unless you have any final okay. comments on the book you want to share. Final comments on the book. Everyone should read read thinkers like Charles Mills, like Miranda Fricker, like Christy Dotson, like Jose Medina, and try to see how they could possibly be construed as radical skeptics about the possibility of objective reality or truth or knowledge. And mm-hmm. especially the fact, given the fact that at least Mills and uh, Fricker seem to be committed to a fundamentally liberal um, political conception. At least Charles Mills is explicitly arguing for that these days. I recommend people read his his last book, uh, Black Rights, White Wrongs, and uh, a recent article, Black Radical Kantianism. These are mm-hmm. both anti-racist appropriations of classical liberalism that lead to somewhat radical conclusions but through a completely uh politically liberal framework amazing great that's wonderful all right now i have to torture you so welcome to the enlightening round folks who are not familiar with the show i'm gonna ask you a series of things you were gonna tell me are those things real or not real those are your two options you don't get to hedge you don't have to define what real means so you can feel free to hedge later uh do you have any questions about this process no no okay so let's get you started here first of all is anything real yes okay let's find out what's real so is the external world real yes okay Ugh, you're already not a postmodernist uh is the colors are <laughs> colors real uh no <laughs> phenomenal consciousness yes free will yes selves or persons yes genders no races no species no (laughs) morality yes rights uh sure (laughs) knowledge nah God or gods? No. Society? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Money? No. Numbers? Ah. Uh, yes. <laughs> Fictional characters? No. Holes? Is in a hole in the ground? uh no chairs (laughs) no sandwiches no (laughs) science no (laughs) canceled now natural laws uh yeah okay beauty beauty (laughs) no causality Um, sure. (laughs) And finally, time. Yes. Okay. You survived. I would would rate you like, what, like a B-plus postmodernist and like an A-minus liberal, would you say? Based on your views on real versus not real? B-plus postmodernist. Like a half-half? I'm like, I'm like, I think what Foucault says about knowledge is just like trivially true. And I don't understand how the hell they come up with what they come up with. That's a conversation for another day. Yeah, sounds good. Well, this has been a lot of fun, uh, Sam. I really appreciate it. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you and your review? Yeah, sure. So everyone can find me on Twitter at Dion Teleologist. So like deontologist, but then put teleologist (laughs) instead of. So dorky. You know, it's like a Kantian <laughs> no, Aristotelian good. vibe. Yeah. Uh, and 
Um, the review should be out pretty soon in Liberal Currents. I'll put it on Twitter. And, yeah, Twitter is a place to find me. Okay. I mean, that makes sense as a handle, given that Khan is a, is a virtue theorist anyway. So, I know. People just people will never never learn. Or really, no. Aristotle's a Kantian. Okay, fair enough. We'll, we'll call it a draw. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sam. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb, blacknonbelievers.com, 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 Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T. And thanks so much to our top tier patrons, the venerable Richard Milhouse Nixon and Dave Maslish. Really, none of this would be possible without you. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content. Most importantly, never forget, you are the void, and the void is you. 